stand up for yourself and I'll back you up don't solve themselves I'll tell you what instead of would or could I think you should draw a line in the sand and stand your ground it's for your own good Many times as we start to take a look at what it is that we're experiencing, we'll ask ourselves, how was I involved in what's taking place? Hello, my name is Roy Poyan, and I'm the host today for The Voice of Families in Addiction, and I'm the founder of Families Impacted by Opioids. What we're going to review today is the topic of enabling and in order to do that, we're also going to identify the person, the individual person who's experiencing substance use mis misuse and their journey as we have known it for many years now and studied it. Uh, well, I've got some good news to start this episode off with. We know exactly what it is that this person is going to go through. Interestingly, we also know how it's going to impact the family. So this is why we're doing the voice of families in addiction, in order to attach their journey in misuse and then recovery with your journey as a family members and how it impacts your lives. Because the two as a family system are in a link together. So that's why you often will hear somebody say, this is a disease of the family. And someone might say, no, it's their disease. It's not ours as family members. And the answer truly is because they are a part of your family system as a family unit and inside of the dynamic, the way that everybody has relationships with each other inside the family, that is where we have this shared likeness in this disease. So when we say disease, are we really talking about you know, a disease? Yes, actually we are. It's a disease of the brain. The best way for the family to view this is that it's a chronic disease, meaning it's a lifelong occurrence that we'll just learn to manage our lives around as time goes by. We'll have certain experiences that are definitely related to this disease. If a variance takes place and an intervention is needed and then readjusting a plan of treatment is required, that's what we see in diabetes. Uh, the same is true with a relapse, with an asthma patient. Uh, they're taking their meds, they're taking them prophylactically, and then all of a sudden they have a variance, uh, they have an exasperation, and they, they're having difficulty breathing, and uh, medical, uh, medical services are engaged, and they're brought back to a health posture where it platforms, and now a new plan of treatment is written according to where they are at that point going forward. So what other types of things might be taking place where the family gets involved? Okay, let's first look at their journey. And what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look at the addiction and the experience of addiction. And then also the, uh, the way that the person, the individual person, progresses in this addiction. 
So we start off with the first one, which is addiction experimentation. And this is where they're first being introduced. It could be at a party. It could be that the drug is being introduced as part of a prescription for opioids, for pain management. And either way, an experimentation of the drug coming into the body is um, administered and then experienced. Then what ends up happening is through enough retakes, and sometimes it's not many, they actually start to enjoy what they're experiencing and they start to use it on a regular basis. They're consciously now saying, I think I want to do this again. And then they start to say, I think I want to do this more frequently. So the frequency of usage goes up and that could happen very quickly. And then we start to see them in the position of the next phase, which is the addiction and risk taking. And here, what we're seeing is that they know that they're doing harm to themselves. They're starting to see indicators in their own life, like, you know, I didn't get my homework done and I got kind of like in trouble for that. Or I came home late because I was doing drugs and I kind of got in trouble for that. I showed up to work and I didn't perform well, or I didn't show up to work at all. And I had somebody call in sick for me. Uh, these are indications that they're taking risks by continuing to use this drug. And then there is the dependency. At this point, what we'll learn in the, um, in the science, the neurology part of our, of our presentation in an episode titled Substance Use as a Brain Disorder, that particular area of the brain is being overridden by the drug. So now this becomes a dependency. Um, and you'll learn about the synapse and uh, how dopamine plays a role and how the hippocampus and memory plays a role and pleasure plays a role overriding the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is where we house our, our logic, our reasoning, and our judgment. So in this portion of this addiction's journey, this, this dependency becomes predominant in their life. And then they roll into full addiction. So when we're sitting there saying, well, how long does full addiction last? Well, that's when we sit there and say, well, he's using. How long does it take to get to full addiction? That depends on the individual, the type of drug, the intensity of the drug, um, how frequently they're using the drug. Uh, it has a lot of, their, their genetics might play a role in that. So I, we can't really say for each individual person, it's gonna be this. It's gonna be on an individual basis. But characteristically, we do have a pretty good idea. It only takes a couple of times with fentanyl to become fully addicted to it. Um, so with crack cocaine, uh, I've, I've heard statistics as many as three times with crack cocaine, and you will become fully addicted to it. But I, I have to, not being uh, in the medical community, um, defer to them in terms of what do the clinical papers tell us, if that's of interest for you to know. Then what we do is we somehow, this person, or we participate with this person in some type of intervention, meaning you're, we're intervening, and we're helping them to see that they should move into detox. So once that decision is made and detox is introduced, now there's three phases to detox. Detox, depending on the drug, typically lasts seven days. We do not want them to AMA detox. And what that means is against medical advice. It's where they go into like their second day. It typically takes seven days and all of a sudden they say, I want out, mom, dad, come pick me up, or call the wife or a friend, come get me, they're doing terrible things to me, this is more painful, I can't take it. 
Um, you got to come and get me. Well, <clears throat> that's not what we want them to do. We want them to ride out all three phases of detox. So after successfully completing detox, of which phase one is a lot of physical um, symptoms are presented, um, sweating, um, really severe muscle aches and pain. It almost feels like they're breaking their bones uh, in terms of the intensity. Um, vomiting, uh, it's just a very bad situation from a health perspective, but they're not in jeopardy typically of dying. We only see that, the, the studies are showing, um, most people do not have a death experience from detoxing on most drugs. Uh, alcohol is a different kind of drug, and, and we, we have caution there. So uh, detox and alcohol is a little bit different is what we're saying. Then in phase two, they're at about day three, and they're starting to feel a little bit better, not good at all. They won't feel good for a year um, and plus. But with this in mind, they're starting to, the, the drug is starting to, uh, lifespan of the drug in their system is starting to wash out. It doesn't get out of their system. It just isn't as intensely present. And then uh, phase three, they're, they're getting ready to make determinants of um, a case manager coming in and saying, okay, Jerry or Donna, um, you're, at, you're at day seven and we're going to discharge you now and we'd like for you to go into a treatment program. Well, boy, I can't begin to tell you how many times we see this person say, nope, I'm done, I'm through detox, I'm better, I'll just go home and figure this out myself. Bad move. This is a bridge that we really want to see the family support the person and let them know that in day seven, you really have to stay with and go into a treatment program because that's where they're going to learn the coping skills. That's where they're going to learn cognitive behavioral, meaning the way they think things through. And that's where they're going to learn uh, other types of um, techniques uh, in terms of dialectic behavior therapy, therapy, mindfulness, how to manage their social life, how to get you know a, a schedule going and get into a clean environment that's going to be conducive to successful lifelong recovery. So with that in mind, Getting to the treatment center is quintessential. It's the reason that we do detox. You cannot go from fully addicted into a treatment center. You have to go through detox, if you didn't already know that. Then at the end of the uh, IOP, let's say it's an intensive outpatient, it could be that they come in into a residential program for 30 days, typically is what we see. There's a partial hospitalization program, what they refer to as a PHP, and then there's also an IOP. And in the IOP, we find intensive outpatient that they'll show up maybe four times a week uh, for maybe three hours uh, in this way that they can still have a job, they can still go home. Um, they're not living at the, at the treatment center itself, but they're visiting it. Um, they're going into group therapy and possibly once a week individual therapy. That's your typical IOP program. And it typically lasts around, oh, 18 weeks. Don't hold, don't hold us to that, but, you know, talk with the treatment center about what their program involves. It's also dependent upon what managed care will pay. In certain cases, your loved one may not be ready to be discharged. And if managed care is not going to carry the bill, that's the point that you may have to do out-of-pocket expense to carry them on for another couple of weeks. Your clinicians, your social worker, your drug counselors will advise you on that as that date and time gets closer together. 
if the treatment center ever asks you as a family to come in and meet with them, do it. Don't delay. Welcome it. Participate in it. Do exactly what they tell you to do because they know what this person needs and they've seen when it's done how successful it can be. They're not saying these recommendations to you to make themselves look good or informed. They're doing it because it really makes a difference in your loved one's life, which means it's going to make a difference in your life too. So now an aftercare program. Well, good. We're getting used to some of these vocabularies. Remember, this is the journey. Make no mistake about it. It's not any different. It's the same for everybody. And in that case, they may go from detox right back to full addiction. So we do see a looping that takes place in terms of uh, they, 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 they go backwards. But in this case, uh, we don't really often see them go from uh, full addiction to full recovery. Okay, and, and they leave out the detox, the treatment center, and the aftercare. The averages state that that really doesn't happen very often successfully. I'm not suggesting that they don't try to do that. We see that a lot. But the outcome is, is typically it ends up looping themselves back to they went back to full addiction from a relapse, and now they've got to make the decision about doing the uh, detox three stages, treatment center, and then aftercare program. What is an aftercare program? Well, they're out of the IOP, and now managed care is not paying for them. And guess what? All of these services drop off a cliff. You're, you're more or less free-falling. And I know that sounds really dramatic, and, and it's not an accurate terminology and, and visual description, but in a sense that you don't have all the support that you had when you were at the treatment center, that much is true. Now, in today's world, the treatment centers have expanded their services and in a very good way for our communities have extended this into what's known as an aftercare program so that they do stay engaged. They are getting monitored to a certain degree, not as intensely as they did when managed care was paying for this person to be in a treatment program. But this program for aftercare, we're starting to see more and more managed care payers pay for that, which is a great news for all of us. So that could last up to a year, year and a half in the aftercare program. And typically it's them getting together and doing things together that show how to exercise a social sphere with people that are of like-minded and like journey so that they can share their, their, their familiar stories in the struggles of successful recovery. These struggles are intense in the beginning. And that's why we've got three phases to recovery. Notice that the three phases are very delineated in terms of, in the beginning, it's all about abstinence and sobriety, okay? And that lasts for about two years. Well, Roy, what does that mean? That means everything that the family does, everything that they do, needs to be focused on the topic of sobriety and abstinence. And with that in mind, we're not revisiting things like, oh, when you were an addict, you did this. That's not going to be helpful, okay? Don't try not to take them back to where they were when they were that. Keep them in the mindsets and the mindfulness of this is where you are now and you're doing good and here are the things that I, I've seen and it's the reason why I'm saying you're doing good. You're doing good because you're doing this. You're doing the good because you're doing that. You're doing good because you're doing this and that. So that way they constantly get re-cued onto things that are helpful for them 
and your feedback is now helpful for them. So when we start to move into recovery phase two, um, then we're kind of at about, oh, I think um, year three is, is about where that begins, and it goes up to year five. And, 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 and that's when we're starting to rebuild ourselves, okay? Uh, recovery is really starting to begin. We're getting a little bit out of the woods as to a possible relapse. They're really vulnerable for a relapse for the time that they stop, stop the uh, IOP to about, oh, 36, 48 months. And then, and then from there forward, it, it starts to drop, not dramatically, but if it was a curve, you know, you'd see it start to go down a little, you know. And, and for that reason, the, um, it has a lot to do with their ability to practice and reassociate in their mind their thought life it has a lot to do with how well they're managing their environment so they're not exposed to triggers. And it has a lot to do with the family and how they're being treated and loved and cared about in terms of social self-esteem and, and, and self-identity. So with that in mind, they moved to phase three, and now they're in a place where you, you'll see them dropping to less than 15% likelihood of recovery. And that's at year five. Did I just say it's going to take us five years to get to 15% likelihood of, of, of relapse? Yes, that's what, that's what has been empirically proven and studied. Remember, this, <laughs> this has all been studied. This is real. So to, to try and like say, oh, well, it's not really that way. No, it is, okay? So when it comes to the recovery phase, then you start to look at Relapse. Well, I thought we said we were in recovery. Yeah, but we need to be realistic. Relapse is a part of the substance use disorder journey. Okay? It doesn't mean a failure. It doesn't mean that they'll never get out of this. We have relapses in diabetes. We have relapses in, in the treatment plans of congestive heart failure, COPD, and asthma. We have relapses in smoking and weight cessation. Why wouldn't we think we have relapses in substance use disorders? It's a chronic disease. It's a brain disease. And we do. And with that in mind, we as a family need to be understanding of that, accepting of that. And so there are three phases to the relapse. Kind of similar, because it seems like everything's in threes. Um, it's just easier that way, but it also breaks down that way. So in, in the first phase, if they're going to relapse... It could happen like that. Or it could happen over weeks, or it could happen over months. But the first phase, typically, they show us that they really aren't taking care of themselves. And the answer to that question of, well, how do we know that? Well, observe their behavior. Let's face it. If they're sitting there saying to you, um, I'm having White Castle hamburgers for breakfast this morning, you, you know, you pretty much know you're pretty off on nutrition, which is a very valuable entity and a part of self-care. If they're not eating, they don't have to all the time, but if they're not eating a nutritious diet, that's going to affect their metabolism. And that, that in turn affects depression and all kinds of other things. If they're overdoing sugars and things of that nature, it could affect their sleep. And that has significant repercussions. Sleep is gold when you're in recovery because it's a time of repair and rejuvenating your energy levels. So with that in mind, 
the, the recovery phase one, excuse me, the relapse phase one is self-care. And we, we want to make sure that we're noticing, are they going to work on time? Uh, are they going to their NA or AA meetings? Are they hanging out with people who are a positive influence to their successful lifelong recovery? Um, all, these, all these are indicators. You can actually measure them on a report format. But don't do that, okay? You're not a, you're, you, you don't want to live a life of waiting for the shoe to drop off on a relapse. Be, be aware of this person as they're going through. Now, because you've taken this episode, you know the phases of recovery. And you now are learning about the possible phases uh, or stages of relapse. So with that in mind, the second stage of relapse is mental. The first is physical, the first is self-care, and the second one is where they start to say, you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, I could, I could have a, just one drink at the, at the holiday party. I mean, one drink isn't going to hurt me. Sorry. I mean, the, the jury's not out on this one. The jury is in on this one. Not a good idea, okay? So the same is true for the drugs. Really not a good idea when it comes to drugs. So with that in mind, we want to make sure that we reinforce the idea of a positive environment. Well, what would that mean? Might mean that the family changes the way they do the holiday party. Well, you could sit there and say, what do you mean? We've got to change how we uh, enjoy ourselves? Well, actually, do you care about this person? Because if you do, you won't do the opposite. I mean, are you suggesting that, you know, you, you have cocktails at a keg party in front of them and invite some people to drop off some drugs and put them on the table because that's what you guys do? No. I mean, you're, you're, you're committing them to an absolute relapse. So mental relapse is, is, is a sharedness, but because typically they're having a conversation with themselves, eh, it wasn't so bad, you know? Um, or they start to think about, hey, you remember, uh, Sally was pregnant. I wonder if she had that child. And, and then they start to go into the physical phase uh, of relapse, which is uh, the third phase. And what that involves is they are physically kind of presenting themselves in the um, presence of the drug. They're starting to think, I, I'm going to drive down the street where I used to get my drugs, and I'm going to show myself that I can drive right by and not stop. Not a good idea. If they went to a treatment program, that treatment program told them in one of their 16 weeks of sessions, don't do that, because we know that's stage three of relapse, physical, and you more than likely will relapse. But if you're at stage three, you've probably already gone through, you're not taking very good care of yourself, and you've mentally started to romance the idea of doing this again. So now you're at the physical stage, and you say, I think I'll find out if Sally's there. If she is, I'll just say hi through the window and, and uh, let them know that I'm doing okay, because I want to show everybody that I made it. Uh, once again, not a good idea. So that's where we are when it comes to their journey. But their, and their journey would be a good, good presentation if this was voice of the person in addiction. It's not. 
This is voice of the family members. So what we're saying here is, what, what role do we play in, in, in all of this? I mean, how much of what we're doing here uh, with ourselves impacts what they do here with themselves? So what we want to do is we want to look at the term enabling. Oh, boy, here we go. Enabling. Well, you know, enabling, you can enable a person to do the positive thing, too. But when we're talking about this, it's usually something that we're doing. We're doing it out of love, often, or we're doing it out of our own needs. And what we have found in studying enabling through the sciences is that um, it often comes from an insecurity of our own. And here's what I mean by that. If I were to say to you, I want you to stop enabling Jimmy, and you were to say, okay, Roy, I'll stop enabling Jimmy. And then I would come back to you and I'd say, so what did you do in order to stop enabling Jimmy? You'd probably have to say, I don't know. Um, what should I have done? Well, that's because I wasn't very clear. Enabling as a word doesn't mean an awful lot. Now, there are 10 types of enabling. And if I were to use one of those instead of the word enabling, if I were to say, I want you to stop protecting the family image, well, that, that, that's, that's actually uh, item number, that's enabling number six of the 10. You could do something about that. So let's take a moment and let's go through the 10 types. The first one, and this isn't by priority or you know, how often we see it. It's just numbered one through 10 is denial, and, and denial is one of the, but it is one of the primary behaviors in families that we see adopting when they first hear that, that addiction is now a part of their family and uh, part of this person's life, this individual person's life. So we're sitting there and we say, oh, that can't be, he can't be addicted, he's a good guy, he's a smart guy, he'd never do that, oh my gosh, you're right, he is doing that. Well, I just refuse to accept it. All right, well, as a family member, you're a problem now. Okay, because you're enabling them. And as long as you're in the family system and are part of the family dynamic, meaning he's got some exposure to you or you've got exposure to others, you're, you're not helping. You're hurting. And, and you need to find out a way to get out of denial. That's your job as a family member. If creating an environment for successful lifelong recovery is what you're doing to express your love for the family, yourself and for this person, then that's your job. That means you probably have to go see a counselor or a coach or somebody to figure out why am I in denial? What do I need to do to get out of denial? So the next thing, the next one is justification. And we see this quite often where somebody sits there and said, John works very hard and I don't see any problem with him coming home at night and having a few drinks. He's at home, he's not gonna hurt anybody, and it's his way of relaxing. You're enabling, okay? Flat out. You're justifying his behavior. That gives him an out. You're now an enabler. You're now hurting the family, you're hurting yourself, and you're hurting them. So you'll need to get together with a therapist or a coach or a drug coach and figure out for yourself, this is your work, your contribution to the dynamic of the family. It is your responsibility and believe it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, in this program, we're holding you accountable to that. If you're justifying, 
you need to stop it immediately. And that means you might need to immediately go figure out how to stop it. And God bless you for doing that. It really does mean that you care about yourself and the people around you. So the third one is allowance. And what that means is you're allowing them to take the substance in your presence or in in a place that you control. So somebody might sit there and say, you know what, I'd rather they do it here than down in a dirty crack house where they might run into an overdose and there's nobody there to help them. I think it's better that they're doing it here at home. Or I don't mind if my children smoke pot. I mean, after all, at least it's not heroin. That's, that's allowance. It's enabling. And you got to cut that out because that is a really bad one because now you're a participant in their taking the drug. And whereas in denial and justification, it's a little bit more far removed. Allowance, you're in their game and you're actually propping them up. So the fourth one is suppressing feelings. Have you kind of noticed that the tone of this conversation that we're having right now seems to be accusatory? And it's not. I just want to make sure that, you know, I put my hands on your shoulders and I shake you a little and say, hey, (laughs) if we're doing it, we can stop it. And it would be really good if you did that. It would be a very kind act of you being a caring person if you were to take the time and have the courage and, and the vulnerability to admit to yourself, yeah, I think I'm doing this and I don't want to. What a stand-up person you'd be. So if you are currently suppressing your feelings, and we see this a lot in mothers, you might get mad. I don't want to, you know, if I bring it up, he's, it's like I'm almost supporting him doing it. We're revisiting it. Now, you're enabling, okay? They need to hear and hopefully you've got you know, a good dialectic way of communicating your thoughts, um, but they need to hear the way that you feel about this and think about this and how it's impacting you. Because without that feedback, they think everything's fine because they want to think everything's fine. You don't need to exaggerate or tell things that aren't true, but you do need to express your feelings because that's only fair to yourself if you do that. So the fifth enabling is avoidance. And that's where you're sitting there saying, you know what, I'm going to ignore this. Maybe it'll go away. This is just a passing thing. If I make a big deal out of it, he's just going to like do it in spite of me. And now he's doing it because he wants to get me back for saying something that I really didn't mean to say when I said it, but I said it. So I'm just going to avoid the whole thing. You're enabling. And it's cowardly. But you're, you're, you're enabling. So you need to stop doing that and get engaged with yourself and start to figure out a way and see a counselor of how to structure your thought life and then how to structure your presentation of your thought life in, an, in the environment of the dynamic of the family so that you can be a positive contributor of a person who is not avoiding the problem. So the other one is protecting the family image. Boy, is this huge. I'm telling you, we see this so much. And it's typically played out um, with with spouses, with, with mothers and fathers, with sisters and brothers. Don't tell anybody. The last thing we want somebody to know is that, you know, Sherry has this problem. So let let's 
protect her by protecting the family image and not let anybody know. Now the opposite is, a, is not true. The opposite being, let's go out and tell everybody. And that way, you know, she'll have to like do what we tell her to do because everybody knows. You don't want to do that, that's for certain. But protecting the family image might be um, you calling up and, and talking to coworkers and saying, well, he's really just off this year, you know, or he's feeling depressed and that's why he's acting that way. No, he's, he's, he, he's taking drugs and that's why he's acting that way, or he's an alcoholic and that's why he's acting that way. And you're making this enabling, which is in this case protecting the family image, a real problem for everybody. Those that are outside the family and those that are inside the family and the person themselves. You're creating a very bad environment in terms of successful lifelong recovery. So minimizing the situation. You know, um, I think that the people who are surrounding him are the reason why he's taking these drugs. And that if he didn't hang out around them, then he, would, uh, he wouldn't be using the drugs. Or you're, um, you're basically saying, uh, if, if he starts to use methamphetamine, I'd be more concerned. But he's only using cocaine, and lots of people use cocaine, so um, at least it's not methamphetamine. Well, that's, that's enabling, and you, you certainly need to stop doing that. The, uh, the eighth one is playing the blame game. You know what? I think the reason that he's taking these drugs is because his mother's an alcoholic. Oh, whoa, slow down. Part of that's true, but that's not the, that's not the way you want to approach it, Okay. This person is an individual, and we all have to deal with our upbringing and our genetics and the characteristics of our environment, the friends we have. But uh, you playing that role in terms of helping them to justify their, their behavior by blaming others is a real big mistake, and, and you need to not do that. Um, they need to be accountable for their use of whatever it is they're to doing, whether it's positive or negative. They, they still own that. So um, assuming responsibility, we really see this a lot. Um, that's where I'm going to make sure that he has housing. I mean, I love him, and I'm going to make sure that he's got housing. No. <laughs> no. They, they need to make sure they have housing. Not you. Well, they can't. He's on drugs. I mean, w we, we shouldn't expect that of him. Yes, actually, you should. Because by doing that type of enabling, and where you're assuming their responsibilities... They have no consequences. I'm going to give you an example. There's a family that has, um, and this is just an example of a scenario, no real life to it. But there's, there's an example of a family that uh, while they were married, their daughter um, asked them if they would pick up the mortgage so that they would be assured that they would always have you know, housing uh, for them and their children, their two, their two children or four children. So with that in mind, um, they cleared the mortgage, paid for the mortgage, and then now rewrote the note uh, where they are basically the bank, the mother and father. Then the daughter falls into alcoholism and is crawled up in a ball in the back of the room. Well, now they got a real problem because um, now she's like not able to make any payments, hasn't been for a year, and you're basically providing housing, which all she really needs to do is squeak out a little bit of a job and she's got enough money for her booze and a, and a Burger King. 
And, and that's really all she needs in order to keep drinking. Um, yeah, but she probably would come to reality faster if she wasn't in a $250,000 home, you know, with 2,400 square feet feeling the luxury of all that and not having any financial responsibilities for any of those things. So we can kind of see a very over-dramatized example, but these kind of scenarios do take place. I pay for my son's apartment. We see that a lot. Um, I give them an allowance. We see that a lot. Um, we, we want to make sure that he's got a car. If he doesn't have a car, he can't get to work. So we bought him a car and, uh, we just bought it outright and gave it to him. He's got the title. These are all enabling and you should not be doing that. And you need a counselor, uh, to work with you on how to stop doing that. The 10th behavior is in the area of controlling. And what that kind of sounds like is, you know, Jerry, if you do this one more time, we're, your mother and I are going to take everything that you have in your room, we're going to put it on the streets, and we're going to put you out there with it. Okay, you've just given him enabling. It's, and you're thinking, many people would think, well, that's ridiculous. We, what we did was he gave it all to me and him. Tough love. Now, now he gets to blame you for that. Well, how should we have done it? Well, I'm going to ask the audience. Did you happen to see the episode on the five stages of change? Because that's exactly what this is. You went from pre-contemplation, I don't have a problem, you have a problem, to the action item. And they didn't go through contemplation, preparation, and then action. You expected them to just change immediately. And we've told and expressed and science has shown it doesn't happen that way. Not if the change is going to be lasting and significant for this person. Certainly you can change the environment and you have control over doing that. Certainly you can make statements that would hope, hopefully get them to consider you know, that this isn't such a good idea, what it is that they're currently doing or planning to do. But to really affect change, go back and take a look at Petraska and DiClemente's work on Five stages of change. Go on YouTube and view the videos of five stages of change. Do the same for enabling. Look up the 10 types of enabling and see a couple of videos. Look at the clinical papers. By the way, none of these topics that we present in our episodes are ours. This, everything that we present in these episodes are from the NIH, SAMHSA, ASAM, empirically proven best practices, clinical studies, professional journals. We've just pulled them down and put them in a kind of an order that you can understand them and more importantly, use them. We're not doing this because we want to show how smart we are. We're doing this because this is real world information and we encourage you to use it. Now, in order to use it, you may want to pick up the Family Solution Finder Study Guide, which uh, has four modules to it and it allows you to go through the 32 um, different types of issues that a family will face. Um, and then when you go to our website, familiesimpactedbyopioids.com, which will be presented at the end of this episode, write that down, go to that website, and go through each of the pages. Pay close attention to the brain disease page. Pay close attention to the 32 seminars. And go through the seminars. 
There's a YouTube presentation where I'll be presenting the topic, and then right below it is a, is a yellow button that says TV episodes. Click on that and view the TV episode, and that will enhance your understanding. We also have a YouTube channel with a selection of 108 different YouTubes that if you just play around in that channel, you'll become very, very informed. And that is titled, when you get onto YouTube in the search field, that's, that's, that's titled Solution Finder Workbook Videos. And there's a, about 108 of those when you get to that particular download. I hope that this information has been of use for you. Call us at any time, 440-385-7605. We'd be happy to get your feedback, your input, make suggestions. Uh, we're not a clinical resource for you. Typically, we'll advise you on how to approach people in your community that can provide you with the right level of guidance. I want to thank you very much once again. My name is Roy Poyan, and I want to thank you for taking a look at another episode of The Voice of Families in Addiction. Stand up for yourself And I'll back you up Cause problems don't solve themselves I'll tell you what Instead of would or could I think you should Draw a line in the sand and stand your ground It's for your own good